Welcome to Asian Centuries. For regular updates and bonus material, subscribe for our newsletter at asiancenturiespod.substack.com or you can listen on your favorite podcast app or find episodes on YouTube. Just search Asian Centuries Podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Cambodia's prime minister says he will resign and hand over power to his son. Cambodia is set for its first transfer of power in almost four decades. It's an historic day for Cambodia. After 38 years as prime minister, making him one of the world's longest ruling heads of government, Hun Sen is gone and Cambodia has a new prime minister. His eldest son, Manet, a former military chief, is Cambodia's new prime minister, while a vast generation of succession has also been completed, with the children almost all ruling party grandees inheriting their parents' position, all moving up through the ranks. But this won't be the end of Hun Sen. He'll still pull the strings of power from behind the scenes, perhaps for decades to come. He'll remain president of the ruling party. Next year, he can become Senate president. He's only 71, and his appetite and aptitude for personal rule hasn't been spoiled. He's even said he could return as prime minister one day if things don't go too well for his son. But nonetheless, he has resigned, and Cambodia now has a new leader. To discuss the life and times of Hun Sen, I'm joined by Sebastian Strangio, who wrote Definitive Account of Hun Sen's Rule, his book, Hun Sen's Cambodia, published in 2014. Strangio was a journalist based in Cambodia and became editor of the Phnom Penh Post. He's now a Southeast Asia editor at The Diplomat, and his other books include The Dragon Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. In this episode, we discuss Hun Sen's childhood, why he joined the Khmer Rouge in the early 1970s, why he revolted against that genocidal regime and helped overthrow it in 1979, how he became prime minister six years later at just the age of 32, the youngest prime minister in the world at the time, how he consolidated power in the decades afterward, how Cambodia has changed under his rule, and what will be Hun Sen's historical legacy inside and outside of Cambodia. And now I bring you Sebastian Strangio. So, uh, Sebastian, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's uh, quite a historic day for Cambodia. Hun Sen, after 38 years in power, has gone. He's resigned. His eldest son, Hun Manet, is now prime minister. Almost the entire generation of uh, 1979 seems to have also resigned and their children have taken over. How much of this is a considerable change for Cambodia or is it a cosmetic change with Hun Sen still planning to rule behind the scenes? The first thing I think to note about this is that Hun Sen will continue to exercise tremendous amounts of power from behind the throne. I mean, this is only natural in if one considers the nature of the Cambodian political system, wherein power inheres in individuals rather than in institutions or in the offices that they occupy. So Hun Sen is handing over the prime ministership, but he will continue to be a key, if not the key power broker within the CPP. And he will continue to have a very profound impact on the country's political trajectory until the time that he is either sidelined or incapacitated. Um, And so I think that we can't really say that this is a definitive end to Cambodia under Hun Sen. Um, That said, the resignation brings to an end more than 38 years in which this leader has been nearly synonymous with his country's politics. And so it it does also mark the end of an era. And it's important to recognize the extent to which um, this sort of transition um, is historical, Um, not just for that reason, but also because there has never been a Cambodian leader who's been able to in some ways institutionalize their legacy and ensure that it survives beyond their own uh, retirement, um, if one could say that. So, you know, Hun Sen is, previously when um, past Cambodian leaders have fallen from power, it's normally come either with a coup d'etat or in the context of upheaval, civil war, in the case of the the Khmer Rouge and armed invasion, 
um, from Vietnam. And so Hun Sen is attempting to do something that is unprecedented in modern Cambodian history. And it'll be very interesting to see, uh, you know, how this unfolds over the coming years. But I do think that there is going to be a um, considerable continuity in the way that power works in Cambodia, the Cambodian political system and how it functions. And some of the pathologies of that system, I, I predict, will continue to um, persist despite, um, well, e even if Hun Manet wishes to curb the, the worst excesses of that system. So, so not quite the end of Hun Sen's Cambodia, to quote your uh, definitive book. No, I think, yeah, it will continue for sure. We're History Podcast, so let's go back in time, um, back to before Hun Sen was Hun Sen, when he was Hun Banao. Um, where and when was Hun Sen born? And what was his early life like? Well, Hun Sen was born in 1952 in a small village on the banks of the Mekong River in Kampong Cham province. I've been there a couple of times. It's a, quite a, a beautiful um, sweep of the Mekong. Um, uh, he, his family was, they were rice and tobacco farmers. He was, um, by the standards of rural Cambodia in the 1950s, Hun Sen's family was relatively well off, although by the time he was um, a child, they had fallen on hard times. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, Hun Sen, uh, the details of his early life are fairly obscure, as you would expect from any uh, rural Cambodians of that period. There's not a lot of documentation. Um, but he, we know that he went in the mid-1960s, he went to Phnom Penh to attend high school. There was no high school uh, locally. And so he, he, his parents scraped uh, all their pennies together and sent him off to Phnom Penh where he, he uh, uh, boarded at a pagoda um, and, and did some tasks there, a, a much mythologized episode in his life story, and then attended high school. Um, after that, we, we think that he left high school probably in 68 or 69. It's, it's still there. Are, there are um, different versions of the story of exactly when Hun Sen left. He went back to um, Kampong Cham and he, he moved around a little bit in the subsequent years. The interesting question from this period is exactly when he got involved with the resistance, the communist insurgency against, first against Sihanouk, uh, Prince Sihanouk's government prior to 1970, and then that, that waged war against the republic that replaced Sihanouk uh, that year. Um, Hun Sen claims that he joined the communist insurgency after Sihanouk was overthrown in the coup and, and issued a call to arms to the Cambodian people to rise up. Um, there is some evidence that he may have become involved in some uh, manner prior to then. But of course, this is a politically sensitive question, given um, uh, the, the, the idea that he would have, have opposed Sihanouk um, consciously prior to 1970. I think that, you know, that would put him on the wrong side of, um, you know, a question, you know, an important question in, in contemporary Cambodian history. And so, he, you know, he's downplayed any involvement prior to 1970. And after that, you know, he, he, he becomes involved in the, the communist insurgency. Um, he rises through the ranks and um, participates in the, um, the final offensive uh, on Phnom Penh, which fell to the Khmer Rouge in April of 1975. So Hun Sen comes of age. He's 18 in 1970, I believe, when the Lon Nol coup happens. Um, Napoleon probably didn't say it, but let's imagine he did. To understand a man, you have to know what was happening in the world when he was 20. Hun Sen was 20 in 1972. Can you paint a picture of what was happening in Cambodia in those years 
um, around the Lomnol coup and what was happening with the Khmer Republic. In 1972, Cambodia was in the midst of a, a, an increasingly fierce civil war between the communist insurgents backed by um, the Vietnamese communist movement next door. And of course, there were many Vietnamese um, communist troops that were um, based in Cambodia at the time and waging their war on the southern government in Saigon from these readouts in the Cambodian inside Cambodia. And of course, this was the reason that the United States initiated a uh, massive bombing campaign of Eastern Cambodia, um, which, which devastated large parts of the country and led um, tens of thousands of people to flee uh, into the city. By 1975, Phnom Penh had swollen um, to twice its pre-war size. And um, you know, the, the, the Eastern part of the country that Hun Sen grew up in was um, totally upended and devastated by the war, even before the nightmare of the Khmer Rouge. Um, uh, Hun Sen, I think at this stage, I mean, he, he would have experienced a lot of this stuff personally. He, um, I believe it's well documented that he, um, when the US and the Republic of Vietnam army invaded Cambodia to try and um, drive out the Vietnamese communists that were using parts of Eastern Cambodia as a base, uh, Hun Sen actually took part in an engagement with American and South Vietnamese troops he also would have experienced probably on numerous occasions the, the terror of the B-52 bombings um, of that time. And so this is a country that, you know, had successfully been kept out of the Vietnam War um, through the 19, uh, you know, the 1960s. Prince Sihanouk had been fairly skillful in playing a fairly limited hand diplomatically in order to preserve Cambodia's neutrality and keep um, you know, keep the war from encroaching on his borders. But eventually, you know, even someone as politically skilled as Sihanouk was unable to keep the country from sliding into um, civil war. And um, the coup of 1970 that overthrew Sihanouk while he was overseas um, and led to his former prime minister, Lon Nol, taking, taking over and declaring a republic, um, that pushed the civil war into... Uh, what, what was then sort of a latent or incipient civil war into an open fight between the communist insurgents um, and the, uh, or, or a more serious fight, I should say, between the communist insurgency and the new republic. When Sihanouk issued his call to arms um, to the Cambodian people to rise up, um, that led huge numbers of ordinary people to flock to the banner of the Khmer Rouge, which, which Sihanouk now um, uh, headed formally. Um, to his great regret, I think. Um, but that was a key turning point in contemporary Cambodian or modern Cambodian history. This is the point at which the Khmer Rouge went from a fairly ragtag outfit that probably didn't have the ability to seriously threaten um, threaten to take over, um, but fortified with Sihanouk's godly aura. Um, you know, they made fairly rapid headway. And of course they were, weren't helped by the corruption and incompetence of the Khmer Republic, which, um, you, know, you know, there was a lot of bad decisions made and how the civil war was waged. There was a huge amounts of corruption that undermined the war effort. And, and by 1975, um, you know, the communist armies had Phnom Penh virtually, and most of the provincial capitals, virtu capitals virtually encircled. And Hun Sen played a role in the final push, although he, he, he was um, injured um, by shrapnel and it lost his eye. And that put him out of commission for the period of the so-called liberation of Phnom Penh of April 17, 1975.
So as you said earlier, there's lots of mystery and, and controversy surrounding when exactly Hun Sen joined the resistance. I mean, there's perhaps far more controversy and mystery uh, involving what he actually did after the Khmer Rouge took over in 1975. Um, what do we know about Hun Sen's life and his work once the Khmer Rouge had come to power? We don't know a huge amount. I mean, I think we can say with confidence that Hun Sen was not an ideological communist. Um, even if he was involved with the resistance prior to 1970, I don't think he did so out of a conviction that the existing order needed to be overturned and a radical utopian blueprint be implemented in its place. Um, I think we can take him at his word when he says that he was motivated by national, like a, a sense of patriotism um, as, as a Cambodian to join this um, insurgency. Um, I mean, and of course, he fought in the military of the Khmer Rouge. He was not a political cadre. Um, in terms of what he did after 75, I mean, Hun Sen has, has consistently denied um, taking part in any massacres or, or, you know, any of the horrific episodes that we've come to associate with the Pol Pot regime. Um, he, you know, he, one particular episode of controversy is the, the uh, repression of a Cham Muslim rebellion that broke out uh, in um, the middle part of 1975 after the so-called liberation. Um, and there are some questions as to whether Hun Sen's battalion was involved in the repression, the savage repression of that rebellion. Uh, Hun Sen claims that he wasn't, that, that I think in, in, he told one of his biographers that he was sick with malaria and managed to use that as an excuse not to send his troops, you know, to, to, to take part in that crackdown. Um, Human Rights Watch did a report in 2015 that, and, and they, they found a few people in the region that, that said that Hun Sen's battalion was involved. It really was inconclusive though, is the extent to which he was, you know, there was no paper trail, no, no um, you know, orders um, that can be documented um, or any other documentation that can really shed light on exactly what role Hun Sen had um, in the Khmer Rouge or, or in particular atrocities and episodes under Khmer Rouge rule. Um, so it's it's still. I mean, I think the jury is just looks to some extent out about that. Um, uh, you know, and I think that's potential. Yeah, potential subject for further investigation. So the Khmer Rouge wasn't only brutal to the Cambodian people, to ordinary Cambodian people, it was also brutal to its own members. And and purges started to sweep through the regime. I believe in 1977, Hun Sen uh, and many people from the eastern uh, zone started to defect. Um, fled into Vietnam, where they formed the Salvation Front. And in 1979, they returned alongside a mass of Vietnamese troops and very quickly helped to overthrow the Khmer Rouge. Uh, Hun Sen's installed in the new uh, People's Republic of Kampuchea, as the new state is called, uh, and soon becomes foreign minister. He's, uh, he's got some very senior people in Vietnam in Hanoi as his, as his mentors, and they clearly see this young man as as future capacity to rule the country. And then very quickly in 1985, after the somewhat controversial death of the incumbent, he becomes prime minister. What explains this rapid rise to, to power? I think um, from an early point, Hun Sen uh, distinguished himself um, by his um, sharp intellect, his ability to learn on the fly. He proved himself to be adept at um, learning the game of politics, but also, you know, he, he, um, educated himself on how to speak on global affairs. Um, he had 
people that helped him in this, of course. And even after he was appointed prime minister in 1985, he still had a fairly steep learning curve. Um, of course, he was only, um, well, I'm just trying to do the math in my head, about 26 years old at the time. Um, or no, sorry, 26 when he became uh, foreign minister, 32 when he became prime minister. So, you know, we're talking about incredibly young. Um, you know, Hun Sen didn't have... You know, he didn't speak any other languages at that point. I think he, he later did pick up Vietnamese, but he hadn't traveled anywhere outside of Cambodia or Vietnam at the time he was appointed foreign minister. Um, but he dis he distinguished himself, um, you know, his ability to work hard. He was clearly a very um, bright young man. Um, and he made himself very useful to the occupying Vietnamese authority that sort of oversaw the um, nascent People's Republic of Kampuchea, as it was termed. Um, and I think that he was willing to do the bidding of Hanoi in a, in, in, in a couple of controversial respects. The, the main one being that he was able, he, you know, he signed a couple of border treaties, which were highly controversial among Cambodian nationalists for their supposed seeding of Cambodian claims um, dating back to the colonial period. Um, and, you know, the, the Cambodian nationalists still believe that the the southern provinces of Vietnam are, are sort of part of this that were stolen from Cambodia in the in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries and that the French sort of formalized this theft in 1941. Um, and and so, so Hun Sen, um, you know, signing this these agreements with Vietnam, which Vietnam basically negotiated on both sides, given its influence over the Cambodian government. This was seen as treason amongst the resistance groups that were then based at the Thai border. The fact that Hun Sen was willing to take the heat for this, so to speak, I think um, showed his Vietnamese mentors that he was someone that could be trusted to look out for their interests. And, you know, naturally he was able to rise quite quickly. He also showed himself to be adept at the political infighting and, and um, you know, that, that is necessary, you know, of these sort of communist states. Um, and he is somebody who clearly was very good with people, uh, not so much the people, but the people around him. You know, he had a lot of bright young Cambodians who were able, you know, he was able to assemble at the foreign ministry, which went on to become his aides and you know some of them um Dittmunti, one of them who's just retired as the president of the supreme court was one of Hun Sen's close aides during this period and so that you know you really it's surprising the extent to which the the, the small circle that Hun Sen assembled during this period is with him you know through to really to the present um and so yeah i think that you know uh, all of these factors contributed to to you know his rapid ascent i think we should also acknowledge the fact that Cambodia's traditional elites were either killed or driven into exile by the Khmer Rouge. And so, um, you know, there wasn't a huge amount, you know, in terms of human resources for the new Cambodia, there really wasn't a huge amount for, for the new government to, to draw from. So really anyone that could speak a foreign language was, was given a post in the, uh, in the foreign ministry under Hun Sen. And, and I think that it was this, in some ways, the, the destruction of the Khmer Rouge opened the way for somebody of Hun Sen's background to be in proximity to power. I mean, this is not, um, you know, historically Cambodia had been governed either by the monarchy, French educated elites and patrician families that were educated, at least from the colonial period on in France. Um, and so Hun Sen was from a very different background. Even Pol Pot was educated in France and spoke French uh, reputedly quite well. Um, and so, 
you know, I think that the circumstances also created an opening for someone of Hun Sen's background and talents to rise very quickly. So Hun Sen's now prime minister, but the People's Republic of Kampuchea isn't doing so well. There's international sanctions on it, mainly from the West and also China. Uh, the civil war is still ongoing. The Khmer Rouge, the remnants of it, are fighting uh, a rearguard action along the Thai border. Uh, aid is slowing up. It's drying up from the Soviet Union and therefore from Vietnam. Vietnam uh, pulls its troops in 1988 and all warring sides gather in Paris and hammer home uh, something of a peace agreement in 1991. Uh, the UN takes over, an unprecedented oversight by the UN of the country and, and the first real democratic elections in, happened in 1993. And Hun Sen's party loses. It comes second to Fun Simpek. Uh, but Hun Sen still manages to to keep his power as, as co-prime minister. Uh, what, what's his uh, history with sharing power? And, and then, obviously, in 1970, uh, 1997, sorry, he then launches a coup. So he's not very good at sharing power, one imagines. Well, the, the CPP never um, accepted the Paris settlement. I mean, they were forced essentially to the table by their superpower backers who basically said they were no longer going to back them. Um, the other Cambodian armed factions that signed the agreement also were, came under similar pressure to sign. The Paris agreements were an internet, the creation of, of, of foreign governments essentially, and, and the Cambodians never really bought into them um, fully. They only did so to the extent that signing the Paris agreements and taking part in elections under the UN's auspices would um, further their own political goals. And for the CPP, there was this, uh, you know, uh, prior to 1991, the KPRP, um, but I'll just refer to it as the CPP for simplicity's sake. They, they, um, they had the view that they overthrown the Khmer Rouge, ended probably the worst phase, uh, the worst period in Cambodia's history, and they were treated like pariahs for that. At the same time, they managed in very difficult circumstances to put the country back on the path toward reconstruction. And the, the three armed factions, which included the remnants of the Khmer Rouge, who had huge amounts of blood on their hands, were treated as sort of equal partners in the Paris Treaty. And they, they argued that because they were in control of Cambodia, more than 95% of the country's territory, and had established institutions um, and put the country, you know, uh, begun the, the slow process of recovery from the you know, horrific experience of the Khmer Rouge, that they shouldn't need to share power with anybody, that these factions um, with which they'd been at war through the 1980s had no legitimate claim to rule the country. And of course, um, these three armed factions, uh, well, at least two of them converted themselves into political parties, which then went to war with the CPP at the ballot box in 1993. But the CPP never ceased to view these groups as fundamental, fundamentally um, enemies um, who were trying to use the democratic elections in order to overthrow it from power and were attempting to harness this Western enthusiasm for Cambodia's democratic experiment in order to undermine their hold on power. And so the CPP took part in the UN elections of 1993 and the whole process of transition that took place under UNTAC's auspices with a great deal of reluctance and resentment. And I think that when they then lost the election, um, especially given that uh, Prince Norodom Ranarid, that the, the leader of Funsenpec, which was founded, of course, by Sihanouk in the early 1980s as a resistance front against the Vietnamese occupation, but Ranarid was campaigning 
why you know he was using Sihanouk's image in his campaigning, and of course, you know the the um, massive popularity of Sihanouk drew huge numbers of Cambodians to to support Funsenpek over the CPP, and I I think that they felt genuinely that they that there was they had grievances about how the election was run, but more importantly, they they had no uh, intention of giving up power, and so they I mean there was a complicated series of um, events involving a, a, a so-called secession of the country's eastern provinces, um, the, cre you know, the creation of an autonomous zone, and then the use of this threatened secession as leverage to um, essentially gain an equal amount of power within a coalition government with Fumsenpec. And so I think some sort of coalition government was inevitable. Neither party had won two thirds of the seats in the National Assembly. And so they were going to have to work together. But the question of how much power the CPP should have in that coalition government um, was, was um, you know, was settled through armed force, essentially. Um, once, they, once this new coalition government took office, um, you know, the Funsenpec ministers found that their power didn't extend beyond their own offices. In many cases, you know, they didn't have the staff to fill bureaucracies. Um, the CPP apparatus remained essentially unchanged. And, and I think this is where the CPP's incumbency, which is the source of its claim to rule the country and, and um, the source of its resentment about having to take part in these elections, was also the reason why Hun Sen was able to reassert his control uh, in the years to come. The, the, the CPP controlled all of the, the, just about all of the civil service Many Funsenpec ministers found themselves in offices, but they didn't have any effective power um, and they lacked the political networks. Um, they didn't have very deep political roots. Uh, many of them were returned, all of them virtually were returnees from either from abroad or from the Thai border. Um, and they encountered an, op an opponent that had deeply entrenched networks that went down to each of the village, you know, all of Cambodia's thousands of villages and stretched across the country and as well as, you know, integrated with a security force that had no compunctions about using force to defend its prerogatives. And so, you know, Hun Sen re retained de facto power through this whole period and, and July 1997, that the events of July 1997 marked in some sense as a culmination of the civil war of the 1980s. Um, it wasn't simply a coup against a prone um, opponent. There was actually battles between for the forces loyal to Hun Sen and um, Funsenpec's armed wing, uh, which was also engaging in machinations and, and plots to, to do a similar thing to the CPP. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's most accurate to view what happened in 1997 as the um, decisive blow in uh, um, the, the civil war that had existed between Funsenpec and the CPP since, really since 1981, since Funsenpec's founding. But the effect of that was to um, bludgeon Funsenpec into submission and to reestablish Hun Sen in a position of primacy. He wasn't formally um, anointed sole prime minister until the 1998 election, uh, after the 1998 election. But um, I think it was very clear at that point who held the effective power in Cambodia. The, 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 the pretense of, of Funsenpec power was swept to one side. Ever since 1997, his rule has been polarizing in Cambodia to his critics. He's something of a ruthless tyrant who dissolves opposition parties anytime they prove to be popular. He commits human rights violations, is in a network, a corrupt 
involved in very shady dealings. But to his supporters, he's ensured peace and stability to Cambodia, which is rare in Cambodian history. Where do you sit on on what his rule has meant for Cambodia over the recent decades, especially since the 90s? It's a very complicated question. I think it hinges ultimately on the question whether <clears throat> one measures Hun Sen's reign by an absolute or a relative standard. I think it's natural for many observers of Cambodian contemporary Cambodian affairs to hold the country up against a universal standard. After all, Cambodia was this great democratic experiment. There was a lot of hope for how the country would develop after 1993 and a huge amount of time and money and um, and, and moral investments in the idea of Cambodian democracy. <clears throat> um, and so I think as a result of that, the country has tended to be held up to that universal standard and clearly been found wanting, right? Um, I think that there's been, in, in discussions of contemporary Cambodia, there's human rights discourse is very prominent. And of course, human rights is, is the universal sort of ethical moral code par excellence. And I think that that's colored the way that many people have viewed um, Cambodia. I think it's an important part of the story. I think it's important to show the, the extent of the corruption under Hun Sen, the extent to which he's used force to <clears throat> shape political reality to his liking, um, and, and the extent to which Cambodia has fallen short of the, the, the promises and expectations of the early post-Cold War era. On the other hand, I also think that if you want to understand Hun Sen and his place in Cambodia's contemporary history, it's important to place him in historical and social context. Um, Cambodia, after all, was <clears throat> prior to the Khmer Rouge, you know, a country with very little experience of popular sovereignty and democratic governance. I mean, you could even say no experience of those things. And in this sense, Hun Sen's pretensions as a leader and his methods of running the country are variations on a theme. Uh, in Cambodian history. And there are a lot of differences that we need to take into account, of course, but important ways, his rule has echoed past phases of Cambodian rule, past regimes. It represents in some senses a, a supercharged version of the patrimonialism that has deep roots in Cambodia, um, even, even as it has changed over time. Um, I mean, politics is highly personalized under Hun Sen in the same way that it that it was under Sihanouk and under Lon Nol and, and indeed right back to the pre-colonial era. Um, uh, and, you know, we also see this pattern within opposition parties and within even within NGOs in Cambodia. So there's a certain commonality in sort of the basic ways that political power and social power functions. I'm not an anthropologist, but I think there's a lot that could be said about about this. Um, the differences, in, of course, you know, are that, you know, in some ways, Hun Sen's Cambodia, you know, is, is anomalous in that these destructive patrimonial tendencies that have existed in all prior Cambodian regimes, even to some extent the Khmer Rouge, although that's a subject for another discussion, <coughs> um, you know, they have not been terminated by civil war. Uh, you know, Cambodia has... Um, is because it is stable and you know, at peace, uh, narrowly defined, the, the, the destructive dynamics of this patrimonial system have been able to build up and build up. There has been previously civil war would terminate um, the expansion of sort of patronage networks and the exploitation of the country. Um, and and the, the civil war preserved, for instance, Cambodia's civil war preserved much of its 
old growth forests. And it was probably the main thing that prevented them from being logged in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Um, uh, I'm not saying that was a good thing, but that just is an illustration of how Cambodia's tumultuous history has actually prevented some of the most destructive characteristics of this sort of patrimonial system from really taking hold. But under Hun Sen, where we've had this long stretch of political stability, you know, a lot of powerful people have been able to amass, you know, unimaginable fortunes from the sale of the country's natural resources. And I think it's important to also to, 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 to focus on that aspect of things. But I guess, you know, to, to come back to your question, I think it is important to recognize that under Hun Sen, Cambodia has experienced the longest period of peace in its modern history. I do think that that's easy to take for granted. Um, and I think that um, it's clearly uh, the way Hun Sen's experience of, of conflict and, and civil war, I think, um, has shaped his view of this question profoundly. Um, I mean, I, I do think that he genuinely believes the country is, you know, um, is a hop, skip and a jump away from, from returning to the bad old days. Um, and that political opposition would truly threaten, um, threaten it. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's important to, to acknowledge all of the bad things. Um, it's also important to hold it up against Cambodia's historical mean and to, uh, yeah, acknowledge the continuities as well as the changes. For Hun Sen, historical narratives really do matter. He mentioned earlier his pagoda boy image of his childhood. He's also uh, invested quite heavily in the peasant king uh, myth of, of Cambodian history. And I guess you could say that history gives him legitimacy, that he was part of the group that overthrew the Khmer Rouge. But now with this leadership succession, do you think that these historical narratives are going to change? Uh, the entire generation of, of 1979, at least from the CPP, seems to be retiring. Will the, will politics lose that focus on what it meant in 1979 and, and tracing Cambodia back to salvation and damnation? We, we, obviously, the now-banned Cambodian National Rescue Party when it's tra translated into French, is National Salvation Party. And for them, 1979 wasn't Cambodia's salvation, but yet another damnation. This, this historical debate between when will be Cambodia's salvation, CPP says has already happened, and the opposition said it's waiting for it. Do, do you see these historical narratives? Will they peter out a bit? Will they become a lot more uh, diluted now the succession's happening? Well, it's. I would have said so in 2013 when the CPP came close to losing an election to the Cambodian National Rescue Party. And, and after that, <clears throat> made promises to sort of reboot its image, you know, to, to, to appeal to young people more. This is when we actually saw the, the, the first, the beginning of this generational transition that we're seeing now with the advent of Hun Manet to the prime ministership. Um, but it's interesting, since then, the CPP has, if anything, actually reinforced um, the narrative of national rescue. I mean, when I was living in the country prior to 2016, I, I don't remember seeing the thank you peace signs, Okun Santa Pia, signs that are now um, posted everywhere in Cambodia. The, I, I don't remember seeing them at the time. Um, there may have been some starting to, to appear around then, but the idea that the CPP brought peace to the country and gave the country its second birth um, this remains central to its historiography and its self-conception. 
And I don't think that that's going to go anywhere. I think it's also at the heart of the Hun Sen myth, which is the, um, the axial myth around which the CPP's legitimacy is now being formed. Um, and I think that this will form the, um, you know, the, the sort of national myth and narrative that is carried forward by the Hun Manet administration and even beyond. Um, so I, I do think that, that that basic idea is going to um, persist. I, I do think it's possible that the, the old dispute about was 1979 a liberation or an invasion, that, you know, that will possibly wane somewhat. I, I do think that the, the Khmer nationalist obsession with Vietnam, you know, which has really prevented Hun Sen from being able to lay claim to a, a legitimacy as a nationalist because he was installed by Vietnam, of course, and did Vietnam's bidding for so many years. And some people still view him as a Vietnamese puppet, uh, even though he's, um, you know, much closer to China now than he is to Vietnam, arguably. I do think that, you know, this myth may begin to fade or this, this, this conflict, this dispute of narratives may begin to fade as, as the Cold War recedes in memory and, and um, Cambodians with usable memories of the past, of past conflict and the experience of the, the 1980s recedes as well. I think that once the Rainsy Sokha Hun Sen generation um, uh, retires and passes on, we might see these issues starting to take on slightly less weight. Um, I do think the CPP will probably have to augment its narrative um, somewhat given the changing demographics of the country and the changing expectations of young people in Cambodia. So I wouldn't, ex I wouldn't be surprised to see more of a focus on, you know, jobs, economic development, um, these sorts of things. I think that, you know, peace, political stability and economic growth, you know, they're the sort of trifecta of CPP legitimacy claims. Um, and I think that peace will retain a sort of rhetorical, uh, an important rhetorical position in, in how the CPP, you know, it's the CPP narratives, but there will probably be a lot more, or there will have to be more focus on economic questions and ensuring that the massive amounts of wealth that are being generated in Cambodia now are spread more broadly. Um, but the, you know, the, the advent of this peace generation, I suppose you would call them, of young leaders Will, will be very interesting to watch. I mean, these are young people who, even if they were born during the Khmer Rouge as Manette was, or um, during the 1980s, which was a pretty difficult time for even for well-connected and, and powerful Cambodians, um, you, know, you know, they've grown up in a very different environment. They're, they're you know, they've, they're scions of uh, massive wealth and privilege. They've been educated abroad. They're, um, you know, they have very different worldviews from their parents, or at least they're, they're, they come of political age in a very different environment. And so it's, it'll be interesting to see what impact they have on the, sort of the structural factors. Um, I mean, my, my suspicion is that the structures of the political system in Cambodia and the, the incentives of that system will, will have a momentum that individuals will be, will find hard to stem. And that for Manette, his decisions as prime minister will be dictated by the needs of the political system and the powerful people that populate it rather than the other way around. Um, so, you know, and that's even assuming that Manette had the, any interest in reforming the system, which uh, uh, something of which I've seen no, no convincing evidence so far. You said that for the CPP, 
1979 is presented as the second birth of Cambodia, perhaps the rebirth of the nation. And one presumes that Hun Sen will want to go down as the second father of the nation after Prince Sihanouk. In decades to come, what do you think his legacy will be inside the country and outside the country? Will he go down in a canon of Southeast Asian greats like Lee Kuan Yew? Or will he be more temporal? Will he be more remote to Cambodia? It's hard to say. I mean, a lot of it hinges on how, if we're talking about within Cambodia, a lot will hinge on how his how this succession goes and whether his legacy is institutionalized in a, in a more enduring way. Um Sihanouk is a hard comparison because he was because he had a royal background and he had the aura that flowed from that. He was a figure that, in many ways, sort of stood above these sorts of things. And we can talk about Sihanouk's legacy, even though, you know, it was you know he did fall from power and um, you know in some ways was was quite a tragic figure. Um, uh, but I, I do think if we're talking about and international perceptions, I think that Hun Sen will always be seen in the light of the post-Cold War era. Unlike Sihanouk, who was a figure who was forced to navigate the, the perils of the Cold War and, and eventually succumbed to the, 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 the flames of war, um, Hun Sen is a leader who was forced to contend with the optimism of the new world order that was supposed to come into being at the end of the Cold War. He was somebody who you know, um, resisted this idea um, and and ultimately has prevailed, um, at least for now. Um, and I, But I think that if in terms of international perceptions, it's very hard to separate Hun Sen from this, this grand democratic project that unfolded in the, in the 1990s in Cambodia and this massive investment of energy, time and um, hope in what Cambodia could be. And Hun Sen will always, I think, be seen as a leader who... I mean, seen particularly by the sorts of international journalists and commentators that make these sorts of determinations, will always be seen as sort of um, the guy that uh, that, that um, pushed Cambodian history back again. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, and to what extent there was a, a, a true hope for a consolidated democracy to emerge in Cambodia in the 1990s is sort of another question. I do think there are, are you know, are deeper patterns at play as well as the sort of thuggery of the CPP um, that complicate the picture somewhat. I do think that will ultimately be, I think Hun Sen will be seen probably by posterity and history as an extremely skilled and crafty leader. But I think there'll be a heavy emphasis on the extent to which he's used um, force in order to hang on to power. He'll be seen more in the light of a Gaddafi type figure than, than in the light of a Sihanouk type figure. Even though, you know, Sihanouk, and again, this. Who are the people that make these sorts of determinations? They're very often foreign correspondents. Um, you know, Sihanouk was incredibly good at charming Westerners. Um, he because he was fluent in French and English, and he was very worldly and loved parties and all of that kind of thing. Hun Sen doesn't have those sorts of skills, and so I do think there's an extent to which you know the the, the abuses and and the suffering that existed under Sihanouk's Cambodia, which is sort of being um, viewed retrospectively as a golden age in comparison to what came after, a lot of that's been occluded. Um, we saw this with the um, obituaries of Sihanouk and, and the reminiscences of him that emerged after his death in 2012. There was a real sense of hailing this grand leader. but And, and there was discussion of the, the dark side to Sihanouk's Cambodia. Milton Osborne was one who, who, who um, pointed that out. 
but I, I, I do think that um, he probably benefits from, you know, the, the, the PR, I suppose, or the, 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 the optics of Sihanouk's um, rule because of the era in which he ruled and because of the sort of individual that he was, um, were a lot better than Hun Sen has been able to enjoy. Hun Sen had the misfortune of colliding with um, the hope and optimism of the post-Cold War era, which against which his regime and his legacy will always be measured. Um, within Cambodia, I think it's a bit more of a complicated question because, you know, I, I do think there's a huge amount of opposition to the CPP still in the country. I speak, I, I'm speculating to some extent because I haven't, I've been based there since 2016 and I can't claim any real, um, to have my finger on the pulse in the way that I um, did previously um, to the extent that I did. Um, but, you know, I, it, it, I do think that the CPP is, is, and Hun Sen have still struggled to really latch onto a, you know, a, a true form of legitimacy. I mean, the nationalist legitimacy was undermined by the associations with Vietnam and, and potentially now with China too, um, trying to legitimize the government through, you know, economic performance has been undermined to some extent by the amount of corruption and that, you know, the fact that there's massive inequalities of wealth. Um, and I think that the CPP is still groping for that sort of um, that that genuine popularity, which is, you know, I think there's there's probably some genuine support for the CPP at certain periods, but you know, it, it is it is sort of having he's spending a great deal of effort to sort of manufacture that um, in the face of a you know what is a pretty destructive political system and uh, that's created a lot of negative externalities. Um, so it's very hard to say. I mean, I think officially Hun Sen will be held up as, you know, a, you know, like you say, one of the fathers of the nation um, and how his aura is built up after his death. If the CPP is still in power and Hun Sen's, you know, legacy is still central to its rule will be fascinating to watch. Um, but, you know, it, there's also the possibility that if the CPP were to fall, then all of that would be swept away and replaced with something else. And um, in which case, you know, it, it would he would be he would be relegated to a, you know, um, a less important position in the pantheon, I suppose. Right, Sebastian, I, I want to thank you for that tour de force through uh, seven decades of Cambodian history. Uh, it's certainly interesting times now with a new leader, and we'll see what the new administration can do. Um, so thanks again, Sebastian. No, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Asian Centuries. For more information, go to asiancenturiespod.substack.com and to see videos of episodes, search Asian Centuries on YouTube. You can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. And if you can, please leave a review and subscribe wherever you find this podcast. See you next time.